Best Book Bits podcast brings you Nick Velasquez, author of the book, Learn, Improve, Master, founder of the popular blog, unlimitedmastery.com, where he writes about learning science, peak performance, creativity, and mastering skills. Nick, thanks for being on the podcast. Michael, thanks so much so much for having me. No worries. Now, for my audience who uh, don't know you, tell us a little bit about your, yourself, whereabouts you're from, and uh, where did you grow up? Sure. So I'm originally from Colombia, South America, uh, but now I live in Montreal and I try to spend as much time as I can in Tokyo because I just love Japan. The Japanese are the best. Yeah. Whereabouts in South America did you grow up? Uh, Colombia, Medellin. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. And um, what got you to sort of where you are now? What was your journey into writing this book about, uh, you know, learning, improving and and mastering? How did you stumble across this sort of area of uh, expertise? Sure. So we can go a little bit way back where I attended a very different high school, which was based on the Socratic method. So the ideas from the philosopher Socrates. So he believed that we came to the world with all the knowledge, but it needed to be drawn out through questions. So my school was based on that. We studied with study guides. We didn't have teachers. We didn't have lectures. Basically, we were in charge of our own learning process. And then we had people to guide us through that process, but not necessarily teaching us the thing. So learning became a process of discovery was something that was happening within me, not something imposed upon me. Um, And that just developed this passion for learning things. I thought learning was fascinating. I enjoy my time in high school. I don't think most people get to say that. I enjoy learning physics, chemistry and all this because it was just kind of my own thing. I was learning on my own. So that made it fascinating. And that sparked this lifelong um, love for learning. I take on new hobbies all the time. And then I was frustrated by by how difficult it was going from knowledge into skills. So something, uh, one thing is knowing a lot about something and another thing is knowing how to do it. So I started researching about learning science and how we learn, how to learn. And ideally I wanted to find a book that I eventually wrote because I couldn't find exactly what I wanted. But I was trying to compile a manual, all this research or how to be a better learner so I could learn more things and add more hobbies into my life. That's how the book came about. It wasn't intended to be a book. It was going to be a manual for my life. But uh, halfway through the process of doing this research, I figured if I'm going to solve it for myself, I might as well solve it for other people. I'm sure I'm not the only one facing this problem. So I, I wrote the book that I wish... Uh, someone else had written many years before. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of authors do that. There's a, always a book inside of them and it's something just to put your knowledge into paper as well and, and share with the world. But I want to segue back to this uh, Socratic method of um, of learning. Was this a school in, yes. in Colombia? Or? Yes, yes, in Colombia. It was very different. Oh, it's the only one uh, in Colombia that is like that, I think. For people listening... Um, Maybe a close example would be the Montessori. I think that that school is in very different parts of the world and they have something similar. Not exactly. So my school was kind of Montessori, but on steroids. Uh, They had many things that kind of set me up for other things in life. One example is, so imagine that um, 10th grade math and there are 13 subjects that you need to finish and I'll be... Uh, 10th grade math, the whole thing. So for each subject, we needed to take an exam. It was mandatory. And then that exam, you would only pass it with 90% or more because the school put an emphasis on excellence. But if you failed, then they said, okay, you got to go back to the material and restudy 
uh, we're not going to leave gaps in knowledge. You can do this. You just uh, didn't get it in the first time, but it's okay. You can go back and restudy it. So for every single subject in middle school and high school, I had to master that subject because they wouldn't let me pass the exam unless it was 90% or higher. Um, and that's kind of how it worked. It was based on excellence and it was based on it's okay to make mistakes. Just go back, fix what you can, relearn again, and just pass the exam. So I think that stuck with me, this relationship that mistakes are not the end of it. It's the beginning. You make a mistake, you go back to the drawing board, you relearn, you fix what you need to fix, and then you try again. Don't yeah, leave any amazing. gap. And was that your, your decision to go to that school? Was that your, um, that your upbringing or parents' decision? Or where did that sort of come from to go to a school yeah. like that? Or was it just the environment that you were around in the early days? It, it was my decision. We were... We had just moved to another city and we had the option of going to, I attended a regular school first and I hated it. And there was this option, this school that would take anyone uh, like at any point in the year, because each student is going at its own pace, right? So you could start a year in the middle of March or in the middle of October, it didn't matter, like that's on you. Um, so I decided to give it a try and it ended up being uh, like one of the best experiences in my life because I took control of the learning process. And like I said, um, I could start a year at any point and then finish however long it took me. So some grades took me six months to finish. Other grades took me 13 months to finish. And by the, the school rewarded autonomy. So if you were a good student, there'll be less kind of on your back about it. So I graduated with the highest one, which meant I didn't have to go to school. And I could take vacations for as long as I wanted. I could take three months, six months if I wanted. Uh, I could study at home, not show up at school at any point. And my work was the first one to be graded because they knew I would do my work. So they didn't need to be on top of me. That was the whole thing. Like develop discipline, develop independence. You're going to need these things for the rest of your life. I think that's perfect. I think it's a it's real life application of what learning is all about. You know, no one yes. no one forces you to pick up a book and learn. Um, people, you know, learn at different times of the day, different structures, whether it be audio, visual, uh, or written as well. I think that's a, an amazing philosophy. I understand the Socratic method of learning, and you know, Socrates have done a lot of uh, work on his sort of body of work. But to actually apply that in the youth and people. Learning through the high school years is uh, never ever heard of that before. So yeah, well, um, thanks for sharing the story. That's that's amazing. I'm sure. going to research into that a little bit more. Um, so how did you go from did you go from Colombia to Japan? What was the what was the transition from after you left school and and why Japan? Right uh, after Colombia, I came to Canada, and it's uh, Canada, my yeah. yeah, my mother was living here in Canada, and I wanted to go into real estate. Because um, earlier in my life, I wanted to be a rock star. That was my dream. And I attended music school for a little bit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, cool. and then I figured like, most likely this is not going to happen for me. The odds are stuck against me. And I could still try, but I don't want to end up having to teach for a living. Not that there is anything wrong with it, um, but I just it's not what I wanted to do. Like deciding to go into music is already jumping into this big abyss. You don't know what's going to happen. So I thought I might as well just get my finances in place and then do music because I love it, not because I have to. So I started researching what's the easiest, fastest way to make money. It was just a means to an end. And real estate kept coming up. So I thought, I guess it's real estate. Um, and Canada offered the opportunity that it's, real estate is a better business here than in Colombia because of the banking laws and how you can use leverage. 
So I ended up here in Canada and that's where I, I built my business. So my actual business is real estate, even though I have no identity tied to real estate. I don't see myself like as a real estate investor. I never wear a suit or anything like that. <laughs> it's just what pays the bills that allows me to do uh, everything real estate? else. Are you still an agent? I, I'm not an agent. I'm an investor. So I own the buildings and rent yep. them out. Yeah. So I still do it, of yep, course. That, that's what keeps everything else going. <laughs> that's what allowed me to go to for the crazy projects like the book. <laughs> Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't know. I actually, um, yeah, I've, I'm in property investing myself in Australia and, uh, yeah, we've got quite a substantial team underneath us to, to do that. And that's what sort of keeps the wheels turning on yep. most of the stuff. So we can, we can talk about that if you want, but I do want to get into your book, uh, Learn, Improve, Master. But um, so you went from Columbia, Socratic School to Canada, uh, investing in real estate and buildings. And then um, you went to Japan. I was interested yes. in the, the sure, why you went sure. to Japan. Well, uh, <laughs> Japan, I spent a couple of months out of the year every year. And I always felt that like there was something in Japan waiting for me. I don't know why, but since I was a kid, I, I dreamed about going to Japan. My dad always wanted to go to Japan too. We're fascinated about the culture. We'll watch documentaries together. And we would always be talking about making the trip, but either I was too busy or he was too busy. Um, to make the story short, he, he died before he could ever make it to Japan. And after he died, that's when I said, I need to go in his honor. And I had so much work in Canada that I knew I could only go for two weeks and then I had to come back because one of my fears was, I'm, there's something that's calling me from Japan so much that I know that when I get there, I don't wanna come back. I'm gonna try to stay somehow. Um, so my fear was that it's like, I'm going to get to Japan and, and leave everything behind and forget about the company and forget about everything because I'm going to love it so much. And it's true. I, I fell in love with the place, but I needed to come back. And it's really difficult to immigrate there. So what I do is I just spend however months I'm allowed to with my visa and I learn Japanese. I just love Japanese people. I love their culture. It's uh, I hope I can end my, end my days over there. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, Japan's on my bucket list to go. I haven't been there before, but uh, definitely, mm. definitely want to go. Um, what came first, the the blog for yourself or the or the book? I'm thinking the blog, and how did that come about? Starting your your blog. Uh, what came first? It was the idea for the book. Uh, like I said, I was doing all this research and I gather all this knowledge, and I thought I'm going to turn this into a book. So talking to different authors, they said, "Well, you need to start a blog, and that's going to." That's going to be the way for you to have readers. So once you launch the book, it's not going into the void. Um, so I started blogging for a little bit, but I felt that wasn't the this, this style or the format that I wanted to use. So then I put the blog aside and focused on the book completely, um, worked on the book, finished the book, and then started posting again, like some pieces from the book and, and doing like smaller, smaller articles on the blog. But the main project was the book, really. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll get into some of the uh, chapters and topics that you talk about with the book. So one of the ones, so I'm going to test you a little bit here. So I'll test your knowledge, but number one is memory. Yes. So you talk about uh, right. memory champions and remembering anything you want. Talk to me a little bit about some of the tips and hacks and things that the everyday people can take away from improving their memory. Sure. Um, so let's start with the most basic part of it, which is understanding something is not the same thing as memorizing it. So you can read a book cover to cover, understand all the information, and you think now you know it. 
You don't. You understood it, which is a very different process for the mind. Understanding is about making sense of information. Doesn't mean it's committed to memory. It's the same reason you can go to a, a seminar and you feel great because uh, there's all this knowledge being dumped on you and you follow along, you understand, it makes sense. And then you think you learned and that's not true. It's just you understood. Um, so memorizing is different. It's about internalizing information. So only when you can recall that information without any help that you know is now in your head. So a practical example would be, imagine you read a book on first aid. Like you understand the concepts, you know what it, you're supposed to do, it makes sense. You put the book back on your shelf, then you're on the street and someone needs first aid. You can't remember what you're supposed to do, even though you understood the, whole, the entire book. And so it's not going to help you knowing where the book is, what chapter you're supposed to review, nothing. If you don't have that memory in your mind, it's useless. You can't apply when you most need it. So first in the learning process is understanding. You need to know what is it that you're trying to do, what are the steps, all of that. And then comes memorizing, is committing this information to memory so it's available for you when you practice and when you perform. Um, the other major concept in memory is there is a distinction between recognition and recall. So recognition is seeing something and recognizing it as having seen it before or having listened to it before. Um, recall is just without any help, you bring that information back to kind of uh, conscious mind and recalling what it is. So a practical example for that is you meet someone at a party, that person says their name, um, and then you meet them again maybe a week later in the street and you recognize the person, but you can't remember the name. So what's happening? Well, you're recognizing the face because you're seeing it in front of you. So it's being run against the database in your mind of have I seen this person before? And then your mind comes back and makes a match and says, yes, I've seen this person before. But the name, yeah, yeah. you're not seeing it anywhere. So you have to recall it without any help other than this person's face. So when people say I'm better at remembering faces than names, it's not just that, it's everyone. That's how our mind works. Recognition is just much easier than recall. But recall is what tells you when you really memorize something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard, It's getting harder every sort of, every year, the amount of information that we're, we're taking in and we're taking in new information. We're actually losing older information to be able to store that new information and, and to recall as well. So mm -hmm. um, in the book, you also talk about sort of optimizing uh, practice as well. So give us some tips and tricks on how we can optimize our practice in everyday life from, you know, you talk about chess players, musicians, and athletes as well. Uh, talk to me a little bit about optimizing practice. Yes. The most important concept in practice is that repetition is not the same thing as practice. So a lot of people have read uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell or read other authors that repeat the 10,000 hour rule. And they think that if just 10,000 hours are going to master something. And that's not how it works. So we can go into the 10,000 hours if you want, because like the research is a little bit different. Yeah. It's, it's not meant to yeah. be 10,000 hours. It's different for different skills. It's different for different people. And the point of the researcher was to like show that delivery practice can take you really far and that talent play a very small part in how, how far you would go in a skill. So the idea is how far you can get with deliberate practice, not how many hours of practice you need to muster something. So that's our first extension. And repetition, if you're in a, 
um, like at a golf place and you're just hitting the ball, but you're not trying to improve, you're just repeating over and over, you're not going to get any better. Same if you're playing guitar, if you just sit down and you're playing the same song you already knew, that's not getting better, that's not practice. That's performance, which is different. So the main concept that people can take away from um, doing better practice is practice is not the same as repetition. Deliberate practice means that you're pushing your level. You're trying to be better than the day before. Um, in bodybuilding, this is uh, they usually refer to this as progressive overload. Just the next time you hit the same exercise, you try to lift a little bit heavier or do one more rep. So you're pushing yourself, you're trying to be better. That's practices. You're putting in the work to improve, not just to repeat what you already know. So for anyone doing any sport, it's not just showing up. It's you need to make effort and push yourself to be better. Yeah, got it. So, I mean, yeah, you can have all the memory principles in the world and you can practice and do the 10,000 hours. But I think what comes first is is mindset. Uh, mindset supersedes everything. If you go into something with a wrong mindset, you're not going to obviously get the results that you're after. But um, d- expand a little bit about mindset. I know you take a bit of time in the book to, to go through it. What what is uh, what is the correct mindset we should be approaching life and and tasks and the day as well? Yes, uh, there's several. So let's go let's go through some of them. The first one is unrealistic expectations. Sometimes we take on a skill and we expect to be really good at it in a short amount of time. And if we don't, then we put it on ourselves to think we just don't have what it takes. I'm not talented enough. I'm not X Y Z enough, and that's why this is not working. And people quit. And the learning process is difficult. So that's just what it is. Uh, The problem is that as adults, we're already pretty good at certain things. And we've been doing it for so long that we forget what it is to start something from scratch. Um, So let's say if you've been doing, like, let's say you told me about real estate or you've been doing the podcast and you've been doing it for so long that you forget what it is to start over. So then you take on a new sport. Uh, Let's say you're going to jujitsu and the first day you realize you suck. Oh, that's normal. You're supposed to suck for a while before you get any better. But people have this unrealistic expectation that they should be good right away. And if they're not, then they don't have what it takes. And we need to remember that learning anything, learning and mastery is a long-term process. So a, far, a fast or slow start doesn't determine how far you're going to go. Some people go through the beginning very slowly and then speed up. Others go through it in reverse. They start very fast. You see them make a lot of progress and then they slow down. That's one. Another important mindset is the willingness to make mistakes. And I noticed this in learning languages. When I was studying Japanese, uh, I would see that the classmates that would learn the fastest would be the ones that weren't afraid of making mistakes. The ones that were willing to look foolish, uh, quote unquote. And then the ones who were too shy and I caught myself in that camp we wouldn't be practicing and that's why we weren't getting any better because we wanted to be able to speak perfectly before we would speak when it's speaking and doing the practice that makes you perfect the language. Um, in that analogy, we would say the people that don't want to lift heavy because their muscles are not strong enough is, look, it's lifting heavy that is going to make your muscles strong. <laughs> it's the other way around. So willingness to make mistakes is part of the process. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Everyone that has ever tried to learn a skill has made tons of some mistakes. Even the prodigies from history, like Mozart, Bach, they all made tons of some mistakes learning their craft. It's not like Mozart was born and put in a piano and he was doing perfect symphonies. No, they sucked also for some time. 
Yeah, life's all about uh, it's all about failing forward. So you, you life's a series of small steps of failure, but you're actually rising up. So even two steps back, five steps forward. It's all about trying new things. Um, yeah, you can't make progress if you don't get your hands dirty and if you don't fail. Um, yep. In the book, you talk about. I'm just going to switch gears for a second do a bit of a speed round and go through some of the myths and misconceptions. So a lot of people think or have a lot of false beliefs uh, around learning and what it takes to to master a craft. So I'm going to hit you with a couple of myths that you put in the book and then um, you can give me a a couple of little speed rounds on what you think it's about. But myth number one, uh, left-brained versus right-brained learners. Yes. Um, So there's some literature or some books that say that you're either a right right brain learner or left brain learner and in reality we use both sides for almost everything i mean yes this brain specializes in certain areas for certain tasks but we're not defined by being like a right side learner or a left side learner that's just there's no evidence scientific evidence that that's the case so it's just one of those myths of learning that is used to sell courses and say like oh you first need to find out which is your dominant um, side of the brain and then you should learn according to that and it's just not the way it is it doesn't hold up to, to scrutiny yeah I think it's a little bit about like oh, I'm right handed so I'll use my right hand all the time no you actually mm. use both hands to lift up objects yes. type on a computer and do multiple things I don't know yeah. which side of the brain I learn with I just know that I have a brain that stores information that processes mm-hmm information and allows us to live a life i don't know if it's left or right i know they both work simultaneously so yeah good myth number one uh myth number two is learning styles so learning styles is kind of similar to either uh, right side or left side uh, of the brain and it's this idea that we're either visual or auditory or kinesthetic and there are many different theories and they all stemmed from classroom experience it wasn't actual research and science behind it and again it just spread because it, it's it's another way to sell people it's like oh you gotta figure out your learning style and i'm the only one who can tell you which it is um so that sells but it's yeah. there are all the things that it make more impact in the in how you learn which is previous learning that's a major one so if you're let's say you've trained karate and then you want to go into Taekwondo, it's going to be easier for you to learn Taekwondo because you now have some decent control of your body, movement, uh, kicks, punches, and stuff like that. You're going to adjust your technique, but it's going to be easier for you to learn it. Same thing with other fields. It's like what you already learned before is going to work as a foundation for the new learning. So previous learning has much more impact than, let's say, if you're a visual auditory. Um, But what is true is that we have preferences in the way we learn. Some people prefer audiobooks or some people prefer reading the actual book, but the preference doesn't mean that that's the best way for you to learn. It's just the way that you prefer. But what we prefer is not always what's best for us. There are other ways that it's it's proven to be better learning strategies. Yeah, great, great. And myth number three, old dogs can't learn new tricks. <laughs> that one's been... That has been there for a while. Um, So we tend to believe that, especially learning languages and stuff like that. But the uh, research on neuroscience shows that our brain remains plastic mostly throughout our entire lives. And the other point there is it doesn't matter, let's say, if you're in your 40s and you want to play a sport or in your 50s. Yeah, so maybe you won't make it to the national league. But it doesn't matter. You can still learn the sport at any age and become really good at it, um, you know, within the realm of your physicality. But it's still within your grasp. 
And so you can learn anything at any age. This is not a problem. Being top of the world, that's a different story. But being able to learn and to improve and to be the best you can, that's within anyone's reach, regardless of the age. Yeah, I think we all get to a point where we get comfortable and we don't want to get into that uncomfortable state, which is that yep. new learning environment. To, to learn anything new or do something new, you have to get into the unknown and get uncomfortable. In, in David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me, talks oh, yes. to, you know, put, put yourself through pain. Um, a lot of people don't want to put themselves through pain, so they mm. won't learn new things or do new things. Uh, comfort is their enemy. Um, yes. But yeah, going forward, myth number four, learning should be fun. That's my favorite. <laughs> uh, so a lot of articles on learning and books on learning say, well, learning should be fun. That's the best way we learn. Like, learning can't be fun all the time. It's going to be dull and a drag and boring and frustrating many times. Uh, if we come in with the expectation that it should always be fun, then we're going to quit. We're supposed to embrace learning with all the hardships that it brings because it will bring them. Um, and so enjoy learning your craft and enjoy having fun with it, but don't be surprised when it's not fun and don't expect it to be fun all the time because that'll be a recipe for disaster. You, you're going to get so frustrated that then you end up quitting. You think it's something wrong with you and it's not, that's the process. Sometimes it's not fun. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Learning, learning doesn't have to be fun. And myth number five, you either have it or you don't. So this ties in with what I was talking about talent. Um, so that's also a myth that's been around for a long time. So many times we create a skill thinking, well, I just don't have what it takes. But have you really tried? Have you put in the work? No one knows how far they're going to go. Um, so think about it this way. When Michael Phelps started swimming, he didn't know he would become Michael Phelps. No one knew. There was no way of knowing. So the only way for you to know how far you can go is to walk that path. And yes, to be the very best in the world, you need a lot of things on your side. So you need good genes, you need great coaches, um, and you also need to put in the work. If you want to become among the best in the world, you need a little bit, a little less luck, a little less of genes, a little less of great coaching. It's still a lot of work. But then to become your best, you don't need anything. You just need you. And you can become the absolute best you can be at something. Um, so that's another point. And an example that I bring there is the basketball which is, well, for a short person, uh, it will be really hard to be in the NBA. Sure, but so the thing is, we made up basketball. We made up the sport, and it ended up giving an advantage to taller players, especially in competition. But as, if basketball had height divisions, like we had weight division for sports like fighting, which obviously accounts for a lot, uh, but we find fighters in all different weight classes. So it will be the same in basketball. We'll find great players at all different heights. They'll just belong to different categories. But the actual skill of basketball, like dribbling, shooting, rebounding, stuff like that, uh, height plays no part in it. Anyone can master those. So anyone can really master a skill. It's not about you either have it or you don't. It's not about talent. It's putting in the hard work. Even people that had have natural advantages they still have to put in a lot of hard work to get good at what they do yeah that, that'd be fun to watch the the four foot basketball league yeah. the five foot basketball <laughs> league if you're in yes. the six foot category or seven foot category uh, that would yeah. be a, that would be a fun spectacle <laughs> fun spectacle to watch and the, and the ring will be a little bit lower as well yeah um and then the last myth which you touched on before a little bit was the ten thousand hour rule by by malcolm gladwell um yes 
Yeah, I know it's popularized in recent years, but you, mm. I know you talked about that a little bit. But I just want to quickly go back to what you're saying about no one really knows sort of your potential. Only when you say the individual can only know how far they can push themselves. Grant Cardone talks about that no one really knows your potential, only you do. So mm. you might be successful on the outside, but you might be only operating at 25%. And in, you yes. know your own potential is is much more further beyond than what other people think you're capable of too. Um so really, it does come down to your self-belief and, and your potential on what you're actually capable of doing. Mm. Um, I just wanted to throw that in there as well. But did you want to touch again on the 10,000-hour rule or do you want to jump into some of the building blocks, um, how we learn, improve, and master? Sure. So we can talk a little bit more about that because I know it's a, it's a very popular myth. And also to give yeah. credit to Michael, Mike, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. So he wrote about it in his book, Outliers, and then he came out saying, well, I actually, I didn't kind of um, I didn't frame it the correct way. So he said like, but it's now out of my hands. I can't do anything about it. It's wildfire now. I mean, people picked up on it and then just replenished it. So to his credit, he did come out and say like, look, that's that's not the whole story. Um, so the story is that uh, Kay Anders Ericsson, who's an expert in expertise and expert performance, he was conducting this research on a conservatory of music in uh, Germany, I believe. And he was looking at the best musicians there and, and kind of having an account of how much practice they had put to be the best in their class. Um, so a couple of things there. One, he never set out to find a timeline for mastery. 10,000 hours was the average that the best musician in that school had done by the time they were, I believe, 19 years old or 20 years old. So they were very good, but not masters yet. They were on the right track. Um, but again, so the point is... It wasn't said to be a universal timeline and it was done on a single skill, which is music. It's a really hard skill. There's been years and years accumulated knowledge that you need to get up to speed with. Not every skill is going to take that, that much practice. Another part is that he was looking at the type of practice they were doing, which is delivered practice, which has certain characteristics, not to be confused with repetition. We touched on this before. And lastly, his point and, and really what needs to be brought home is that he wanted to point out that even these great musicians, who many people would call talented, had done many, many hours of practice. Telling you that, hey, it's not just talent. Talent accounts for a very small percentage of it. It's really all this work and all these hours that these people are putting with great teachers doing deliberate practice. That, that's what makes them great. That's what marks the difference. Otherwise, you would have seen some of those great students with maybe 100 hours of practice or 1,000 hours of practice and being at the same level. And that's not what he found. He found that the best ones have done mostly the most practice than anyone else. So the latest point is, and his quote, which I put there, is that delivery practice can open a door that you thought was not available to you. Open that door. Delivery practice can take you really far, farther than you that you think it can. Uh, but many times we just blame it on on talent. Well, I'm not talented enough. No, you're not putting in the work. So put in the work and see where it takes you. Yeah, yeah. And um, just to go back a little bit with the 10,000 hour rule with, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell studying musicians. I mean, you can, I'm a big fan of classical music and, it, you know, classical music has been going around for hundreds of years, yes. but what they can actually do is go back and, and see the lives of the Mozarts, the Beethovens and actually see 
not only their body of work, but how they actually learned and how they composed over the decades. A lot of the uh, the famous classical musicians took decades to get to the point yes. where they made something good. So a lot of the times, and I've read this in many books, you might have a yes, they could be young prodigies making music in their um, early early teens, twenties as well, but the real best symphonies and their best body of work came in their 30s and 40s and they, they mm. still sort of worked in their 50s and 60s as well. So mastery is a lifetime thing. It's not a short-term thing. Correct. And there's a little quote that you put in your book as well, which I just want to uh, repeat here, which is amazing. It says, learning proceeds until death and only then does it stop. His purpose cannot be given up for even a moment. To pursue it is to be human, to give it up, to be a beast, and that's a—I um, can't say the word, but it's Xiong a Chinese. Um, yes, Chinese. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, a mastery is till death. Learning is. is till death. It's not a. There's not a stop. There's not a point. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? It is a process. I, I keep that in mind a lot, and in my head, I think of mastery as this path that never ends. We just drop dead somewhere along the way. But then the point is just before we we take our last breath, we look back and we see the path that we walked. And if we feel proud about where it took us, knowing that we left everything there, that we gave it all, then you get to die in peace. But it, it's a path that you never yeah. finish. It's just well, well, the walk. Yeah. And, and people invest in masteries. So just for example, the Olympics are, are coming on soon. People are going to invest their time in watching athletes who have spent numerous of years disciplined to do something for a very, very short period of time. I mean, look at uh, Usain Bolt, uh, 10 seconds is yes. his race, like 10 seconds. And if he's off by 0.01 or two, he might lose the actual, lose the race. So people mm. invest in, you know, purchasing music for someone who's, you know, spent decades on crafting their craft. Um, we all pay attention, whether it be money or time, to to people who have excelled at and focused on mastery. So um, just going to jump into the next one, which is uh, in the book you talk about the three building blocks. So I'll talk them and then you can sort of go through them a little bit. So building block number one is a association. What, what does that have to do with sort of learning, improving and, and being a master? Well, association is the way we learn. Um, that's just the most fundamental principle of the mind and we can use a language as an example so when we're after we're born and then our parents are trying to teach us a language they start let's say like mom 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 and you, you slowly start to associate this noise because it's really just a noise with your mother and then that association becomes stronger over the years to the point that you can't separate them so if i say mom and you speak english you can't discern between the noise and the meaning now it becomes one single thing it's the same for learning skills we create associations of how we move our body how we think um how we apply it and so those associations as they group together they form larger chunks so that's uh and that'll tie in with the next building block which is chunking so we create more complex associations and imagine it this way so if you're driving a car and you need to take a turn at the beginning, well, you already know how to drive a car and you learn to associate like how, how much to move the steering wheel and how to press on the gas and how much pressure and all these things. 
And if you think about it, a turn is a very complex process. Like you, you put the flashers on, you check that there are no cars coming, you start turning the wheel at the at the right angles and adjusting, and then adjusting your speed, brakes, or accelerator. Um, so there's a lot of things going on. At the beginning, when we're learning to drive, all of this was clumsy, and we thought about it as, as a process, like a linear thing, like one, two, three. But once we become better, it's just part of one fluid motion, like one sentence. And we... We take a turn without thinking too much about it. So that's the complex chunks. And as these chunks, we repeat them, then they become unconscious, which is the last building block there. All this becomes part of our subconscious. So if you think about when we learn how to walk, at the beginning, it was really difficult. We kept falling. We didn't know how to balance our bodies. Like we don't remember because it was so long ago, but it was difficult for us. But later, like now, if you go for a walk, you're not thinking about how you're balancing your body, how you're swinging your arms and moving your feet and what comes first, what comes later. You just do it. So this became an unconscious process. And that's behind any master, because if you think about the speed at which a violinist plays, for example, um, it's too much for the conscious mind to process. So what they do is like they start building these pieces and as they practice them and practice them, they become unconscious. Once they're unconscious, that your conscious mind is free to add to what you already built. And that's how you build speed. That's how you build all these crazy things that you go, wow, how do these people do that? It's the same process. Associations, then you chunk them into more complex ones. Then they become unconscious. Now you free your conscious mind to create new associations. Then you chunk, then you move into the unconscious. So those are the three building blocks of learning anything. But that's kind of the internal process of how we learn. I like to focus more on how to learn. How do we apply? How do we use strategies to become better learners? Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, definitely uh, makes sense. And we're all going to be different in terms of our learning styles, but they, they are the building blocks uh, to association. Um, just going to jump into something a little bit different. I want to sort of uh, find out if someone came up to you and said, hey, Nick, um, do you have any couple of top recommendations for books? When someone says, do you um, give me some recommendations of book, what would yeah. be the sort of one or two or three books you would automatically say, go out and buy? I'm interested to hear. Yeah. First of all, um, anything by Robert Greene. Robert Greene is my Robert favorite Green. author. He's, he's amazing. The depth of research yeah. and the quality of prose is unmatchable. I, he's one of the best writers that's ever lived, I think. I, I've, I don't know if I've read many good things that like, for example, 40 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The Loss of Human Nature. Wow. Okay, so anything Robert Greene. But... For people that don't read that much, there is a book that I always recommend. It's called Too Soon Old, Too Late Smart. And it's this psychotherapist, spent 50 years doing psychotherapy, and he just compiles kind of the 30 main problems that people will come to therapy with and kind of what's the way it was the way to approach them and to deal with them so i found it fascinating i think it compiles a lot of this self-development that i read over many years that book kind of has it all and it's well written it's a short read it's divided into 30 short chapters so for people that don't like reading that much that's the one i always recommend yeah um for your audience watching this and, and don't know who I am, I, I run the world's largest free book summary website and video written in audio format. I've done all of Robert Greene's works. So there's probably about six or seven book summaries of Robert Greene on the channel. Um, and I've also done that uh, book by, uh, I think it's Gordon um, Livingston as well. Gordon Livingston, uh, Fantastic yes. book, uh, Too Soon Old, Too Soon Late, or Too Soon Old, Too Soon Too Late Smart. smart. Uh, too Soon Old, Too Late yeah, Smart. Yeah, awesome. Yes. Amazing, amazing books. And yeah, I'm a massive fan of Robert Greene as well. Yeah. Um, 
In terms of mentors, so would there be any uh, mentors that you look up to, such as Robert Green? Is there any other names that you would sort of associate if someone said, "Hey, who who should I follow? Who who are some of the people I should be consuming their content? Who would who would they be?" Uh, so f- obviously for writing, then Robert Green and his books are amazing. My mentors have been books uh, I've been reading all my life. I built my business based on Robert Kiyosaki, so poor dad, rich dad, poor dad. That's kind of what started all. Um, so I read a lot of his work. That's what inspired me to go into finance. Now that I'm going into investing, I read a lot of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. Those two guys are just so wise. It's, it's ridiculous. I don't think people give them enough credit, especially to Charlie Munger, because people dismiss him as kind of um, Warren Buffett's partner and nothing else. And, and because he's in, in, in advanced age, people don't like I don't know why, but they don't like reading about older people and like they amass so much experience, you have no idea. Um, and it's just a problem of Western society where we think that people after a certain age, they become just uh, kind of like leftovers or whatever. That, But there's so much yeah. to learn. Well, I've actually done a, um, a two hour summary on poor Charlie's almanac and a lot of people I just don't finished know who it. Charlie Munger yes. is, but yeah, so w- like one of the most amazing minds and yes. literally Warren Buffett's, uh, you know, Robin, you know Batman and Robin. So mm-hmm. he's uh, the the Robin of uh, of Batman. Uh, yeah. But yeah, amazing, amazing person. And Robert Kiyosaki as well. Yep, done all his summaries too. Amazing um, information and content. I know a little bit controversial now, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, YouTube channels or or podcast. Any any that come to mind? Um, I remember listening. I haven't listened to it that much, but I listened to Hardcore History. Um, history. Yeah, hardcore history. So he's talking about like certain periods of history, and and it's just fascinating to hear him narrate. Um, the other podcasts that I listen to, I listen to a lot of um, Tim Ferriss back in the day. I don't listen, to, uh, I guess, to that many new ones these days. So I used to listen to Tim Ferriss, to Lewis House, to mostly like self development ones. Um, but now I try to use the time also to listen to some audiobooks. So it's kind of a mix. And what else? Yeah, I think those are the ones that the main ones that I listen to. Yeah, perfect, perfect. What are you currently working on at the moment, or what's what's your sort of next sort of one, three, five years sort of vision on on what you want to do and uh, where you want to go? Well, I started investing uh, last year, so I've been waiting for a a stock market correction for a long time to get me into it. And when it happened, I knew I was going to have to sacrifice at least two years of my life, that, like be completely immersed in it. Um, so I was trading options, complex options, multi-leg options and things like that. And that took a toll on me for sure. Uh, the writing also suffered because I wasn't writing as much, partly because I was so stressed out all the time. And now I'm taking a step back. Like I felt like, okay, you know what? I'm making money and it's good money, but it's coming at a cost. And it's coming at a cost where I don't really need much more money and it's destroying my health, it's destroying my nerves. I'm not writing nearly as much. So I'm taking that step back so I can go back into the more creative side of it, which I know centers me. Writing does good to me, reading does good to me. And I had kind of put those on pause, but I knew it it was a delivery thing, but now I'm just kind of going back to what my life was before the start of the pandemic. So writing more, reading more, doing work whenever I have to, because I don't really enjoy doing work. And <laughs> I try to avoid as much as I can, which is which I guess it works out well, because you're thinking of ways of how not to do the work. So you try to automate things uh, and you try to delegate things like hating 
to work actually makes you really creative. <laughs> I I I I make this some um I make the summary that we're all like the Shawshank Redemption and stuck in a little economic slavery in a jail. We're all working at the bar. So when the guards aren't watching, we're sort of hacking at the bars on trying to break free of economic slavery to get to the point where we can just, um, you know, have freedom and and do what we want to do without the burdens of um, worrying about things. So I think all entrepreneurs like yourself are in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, Just last one more question before we wrap up and I ask all my guests this question. If you could host a dinner party with three people from the past, famous, dead or alive, who would they be and what would you serve them? Oh, man. Um let me think. For Robert a Green, I'm going to put that one in. So I'm uh, going to Robert give, gonna I'm gonna be give there. you a free oh, for, ride. Oh, for sure. He's going to be there. Of course. Uh, I think I would really like to talk to Charlie Munger. Who'd be the other two? Um, two more. I'm from history. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure Nietzsche would be there. So it would be awesome okay. to see that talk between Nietzsche and Robert Green and Charlie Munger just saying nothing to add. Uh, <laughs> 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 so those three for sure I, I wouldn't know what to serve uh, that's that's a tough or question or you could take them out to a fancy restaurant or something like that that's fine but uh, what cuisine what cuisine do you think you would you would have to choose I would choose Japanese cuisine because um, probably Nietzsche and Munger would be out of their comfort zone um, Robert Green would just enjoy it so that will be a fun thing to watch us trying to slurp noodles these three amazing people <laughs> <laughs> That would be funny. Be be a good conversation. So uh, Robert Green, uh, Nietzsche, and Charlie Munger, Japanese. Um, You'd probably take him to Japan first class. Charlie would pay. And then, yeah, you would go to a high-end Japanese restaurant and and watch him eat noodles. That would be cool. That would be cool. Um, Now, just before we – so the last question I just want to ask, what what would be the last message you would leave uh, the audience watching and listening uh, to this podcast. Yeah, I think the message that I want people to take home the most is the premise of my book, which is sometimes we see the end result of things. We see people performing, we see a musician on the stage or someone uh, playing a championship game. Uh, because we're seeing that polished work, we think we could never achieve the same things, which we think we don't have what it takes, um, that these people are magical. And they're not. There is a process behind learning and mastering skills that anyone can replicate. So it's just keeping in mind that what you're seeing is kind of like the magic illusion, but there's always a process behind it. And you also can find your own greatness. It's a matter of going into the process. So don't be discouraged when you see those people and you think, wow, they, they have it so well, they must be so talented. There was a lot of work that went behind it and that work is available to you as well. So you can find your own greatness. It's about putting in the work and really committing to the process. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing your wisdom. Thanks for writing the book. Uh, where can people sort of connect with you or, or purchase the book as well? The easiest place uh, for the book, anywhere books are sold. Amazon would be very easy, obviously. Um, so the book is Learn, Improve, Master. And then to connect with me, my blog, unlimitedmastery.com. And over there, I have all my handles for social media. I try to hang out on Instagram um there's too much social media so i try to keep it to one so if you want to send me a message or comment on something or anything like that instagram will be the easiest but all my social media handles are on my blog so unlimitedmastery.com yeah perfect so nick thanks for being on the best book bits podcast have a great day look forward for more work coming from you and to my audience go out follow this man uh purchase his book digest his stuff do the ten thousand hours uh learn master improve get onto it nick 
Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks Michael, so much. Thanks for, so much for having me. No worries at all. Cheers.